Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Ida Vok in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 26th of February. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Ido, how is this week in Berlin? Pretty good. Once again, Angela Merkel has had to reassure her compatriots that the AstraZeneca vaccine is safe because I think only about half the doses delivered to the EU have actually been used. So it's uh, turning into a bit of a shambles here. And in part, those low numbers are a result of the fact that apparently people don't want to take the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is quite bad news for the vaccination program in the EU. And how is Washington, D.C.? Well, here in D.C., people do want to take the vaccine. And actually, this week, the city announced that people with with health preconditions, in addition to people over 65 and people who are at-risk workers would be able to get it, except that they didn't update the website properly. So they made the announcement Wednesday and then Thursday people went because they were eligible. So they went to sign on and were told, oh, no, you're not. You're not eligible yet. So it's a bit of a shambles here as well. Before we get to our our guest, what has been the moment this week that you think will go down in history or that you would just like to talk about? So my moment of the week is a apparent attempted coup in Armenia. So the prime minister, Nicole Pashinyan, was told to stand down by some senior military figures and refused and told his his supporters to rally in the kind of main square in Yerevan, the capital, so Republic Square. This is not entirely unexpected because, as I have reported in the New Statesman before and I talked about before on this podcast, there was a pretty devastating war for Armenia last November with Azerbaijan over the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia lost pretty significant territory to Azerbaijan. So it was no surprise that the army decided to to step in and because there was widespread anger at how the civilian leadership had managed the conflict. Why it happened now rather than, say, two months ago is is up for the debate, I think. But for the moment, Pashinyan seems to be clinging on. I don't think there's been any indication that he's going to stand down, nor has there been any indication that the army will seizing government buildings or anything like that. But it's still it's still an interesting development. And what's your moment of the week? My moment of the week relates to a figure we have discussed before on this podcast, Alexei Navalny, arguably Russia's most prominent opposition figure who is currently imprisoned. So Amnesty International had originally said that he was a prisoner of conscience. Then after 
many people around the world called to complain, some of whom were, had been inspired by a freelance writer who is published with RT, the pro-Kremlin outlet formerly known as Russia Today. Amnesty said that there were too many calls, they had to ignore it, and so stripped him of the title of prisoner of conscience. The reason for this was that Navalny has made hateful comments in the past. He's hate speech. He's appeared to liken immigrants to cockroaches. He's done a play on words in Russian that basically said that the Georgian people were rodents. Obviously, these are horrible, hateful things to say. And it would have been one thing if Amnesty said, you shouldn't be in prison, but because you have said this, we're not going to give you the title of prisoner of conscience. But they did give him that title and then stripped it due to a pro-Kremlin narrative. Amnesty came out and said, well, this was becoming a distraction. The main thing is that he is released from prison. But the stripping of the title, ironically, has become more of a distraction that has enhanced a line of talking points that distracts from the fact that Alexei Navalny is in prison because he is an opposition figure and an anti-corruption activist. So I don't know that it will go down in history, but I think it could. And it certainly was memorable this week. With that, we are just truly delighted this week that we are able to announce the following guest. We have Sir John Jenkins, a former UK ambassador to Libya and Saudi Arabia. Sir John, thank you so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. You have a piece this week in the New Statesman. It's called The Lights That Failed, Why the Cause of Liberal Democracy Collapsed in the Middle East. Now, regular listeners to this podcast will know that we had a 10-year Arab Spring episode specifically about Tunisia. So today we're going to sort of broaden it out and speak about the region as a whole and your experiences there. But I want to start at the end of the piece and kind of work our way back up because you write that we should minimize the rewards for destroying a state. Corruption is not a bug in the system. It is the system. And when corrupt elites stash their loot, they turn to London, Zurich, Paris, New York, Frankfurt, Caracas, Ankara, Nicosia. That's where the fuel lines of destruction run, cut them. Do you think that there was enough of an effort made a decade ago to go after corruption? Like, do you think that that occupied enough space in the kind of Western diplomatic imagination? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, if you look at the, the way in which the Western response to the Arab, not just the Western response to the Arab Spring, the Western response to, to what we all thought were problems of governance and so forth in the Middle East, where before the Arab Spring, it was devoted to things like institution building and economic support. So you got that through the through the Algiers process, through the Union of the Mediterranean. EU was very big on this. The US had a massive program through USAID doing this sort of stuff, and none of it worked. I mean, in a way, you saw the same thing in, in, the, in the commentariat in, with social scientists other observers, uh, non-governmental observers, and so forth. It was all about how do you get to build out of what we already have, the building blocks we already have in the Middle East, functioning states that provide you know, equity and so forth to their citizens or to the people who want to be their citizens. And that's not to say that's not an issue. Uh, the trouble is that nobody knows how to do it. And I think it, it, we, we came very late to the realization that we didn't have a clue. I think Iraq was actually a, a, a massively formative experience for a lot of people, including me, in terms of all of that. And corruption was seen as a sort of epiphenomenon. It was something that just went to the territory. And therefore, you know, if, if all the other stuff happened, corruption would, would vanish. You know, I was very struck last year by what Barham Saleh, who is now the president of Iraq, as an old friend, said publicly when he said, corruption is a political economy of conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, that struck me as A, very true, and B, very important, because nobody had said anything like that before. If you look at the ways in which militias in particular, in places as different as, as, as Lebanon, Libya, Syria, Iraq, uh, have, have embedded themselves within the public space. 
they've done it through getting hold of resources. Now, in Libya, they did it through getting hold of, of oil revenues and through what was left of the sovereign wealth funds and by smuggling and extortion and the rest of it. A similar thing has happened in Iraq and it's going to happen in Syria and it, it's happening with Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. And once, when you do that, what happens is, is that you then attract more people to your militia or your sub-state group, which is essentially colonized the state, and therefore you accrue more power and you have more opportunities to access resources. It's a cycle. It keeps repeating itself. And it seems to me that this is absolutely central to the problematics of Western policy in, in the Middle East. Because most of this money doesn't stay in the Middle East, it goes somewhere else. I mean, if you look, look, at the, if you look at the money that's been stolen from Iraq since 2003, it is humongous, uh, as Iraqi ministers themselves have admitted. You know, and it ends up in property in London, in banks in Geneva, in property or, or other assets in Amman or Ankara and so forth. What you're doing is actually entrenching a corrupt elite at the heart of the state. And that seems to me something we can do something about given the nature of the global financial system. I guess a two-part question. First, why do you think that there was this mental block against understanding how central that was to the problem? And two, would you say that that was the biggest mistake that, that Western governments made, or was it one of a, a series of <laughs> equally sized errors? Anybody faced with, with what happened in 2000, late 2010 through 2013 would have struggled, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very interesting if you look at the, the, the debate within the social science community, the area studies political science community, since 2011, because they also didn't spot it, didn't spot the fact that, you know, revolutions in inverted commas were coming, were coming down the track. Nobody did. And there's been all sorts of reasons advanced, you know, it, it, it was a, an obsession with, with very particular data-driven research or studies. In governmental point of view, it was, it was this belief that revolution might happen, but you had to deal with what was in front of you while it had the power. So I think we everybody made mistakes, including people in the region. If you look at what the, the, the trajectory of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt from 2011 to 2013, they made exactly the same mistakes that they'd had in 1953 to, 50, to 54 with Nasser and the three officers. And it's amazing how people never learn anything. I mean, you know, I, I, as a diplomat, I, I sat through, I can't tell you how many hours of, of, of lessons learned exercises. The, the only things pe- people ever do is identify lessons. They never actually learn them. So, you know, it was fiendishly difficult to get up to get a handle on this. I think the, just a, very briefly on the corruption point, as I said, I think governments, I think we tended to see it as something that was that was extraneous, that, that was a that was a fruit, a benefit of state capture, rather than being the underlying reason and the underlying fuel for it. And I think there's another point as well, which is the way in which this corruption is is not simply about skimming, you know, ten to twenty percent off contracts. It's far deeper than that, and it's far more extensive. And I think one of the things that we still haven't quite addressed is the way in which this sort of corruption feeds into the sort of global state-backed, but also criminal enterprise-backed black economy. It's amazing how people never learn anything could be the tagline of the World Review <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting piece, and I'd, uh, I'd encourage all our readers to read it. It's in this week's magazine and also on the website. One of, one of the threads running through it is a kind of scepticism of revolution. You write that revolutions don't always turn out badly, but often they do. Thucydides, Hobbes, Weber, all of whom lived through the convulsive overthrows of old order, old orders, knew how bad revolutions could get. Why had we forgotten? But you also talk about how inevitable they can be. And uh, you write that it's likely that the Arab Spring of 2011 yeah. won't, won't be the last. So there's this tension running through the piece. And I was wondering if you could if you could expand on that slightly. 
when I first went to the Middle East in, in, in 1981, the population was about 250 million in, in that space, so from Mauritania through to everyone. It's now about 400, it's over 400 million. Creeping, I'm maybe creeping up, but actually it was 450 million. I mean, it's, it's more or less doubled in that period. So if you look at the demographics, something fundamental has changed. And the population has, if anything, got, got younger. So the median age in, in, across the Middle East is somewhere between, uh, depending on the country, between 19 and 31. It's 19 in Iraq, I think. It's 31 in Lebanon. So it's, it's a very young, very, an expanding population. So clearly, one of the drivers of this is, is some form of socioeconomic discontent. It was the same thing in 79, uh, 78, 79 in Iran, if you look at the crowds that made up the revolutionary mob. So and, and that hasn't gone away. And, and, and one, of the, one of the enduring features of the modern Middle Eastern state is its inability to provide jobs uh, and to provide social welfare before it provides things like you know, democratic rights, human rights, and, and so forth, all of which are important. But for a lot of people, tend to be secondary to the other issues. Uh, and if you, if you look at wonderful data sets like those collected by the Arab Barometer, which has been doing social surveys across the, across the, uh, the Arab world for the last well, for about 15 years, the sort of stuff that David Pollock at the Washington Institute produces with the Khalil Shikaki and Rabala, those underlying drivers of discontent remain and will only get will only get more acute. I mean, I don't think that what Sisi is doing in Egypt is going to create the sort of opportunities for young people that, that they want. I think the same is probably true in Saudi Arabia. I think the same is certainly true in Lebanon and Iraq and Algeria. So, you know, these the, the pressures haven't gone away. The problem is, how do you deal with them? And, and, and the problem in the Middle East is all, has always been, how do you deal with, with this problem of governance? And, and the problem of governance has been there since the 1920s. It, it was different in the 1920s. I mean, there were massive gains in, in, in social welfare between about 1921 and, and, and 1945 in many countries. Then you had the military regimes, and they had a sort of one-off burst when they nationalized a lot of land and businesses. But that ran into the sand. And there's no prospect ahead that I can see of any uh, sort of deus ex machina arriving and making the economic situation better. So those pressures are there. They will continue to build. And, you know, if people's aspirations aren't met, there will be further disturbances. I think one of the lessons that a lot of people in the region, and I should say, incidentally, one of the things that's been really interesting since 2011 is the way in which people of the region now speak for themselves far more than, than, you know, people like me telling everybody what, what to think about the Middle East. And I think it's really important. There's a lot of really disparate and interesting voices out there. But if you look at what, what, what demonstrators, protesters are trying to do, they seem to me to be trying to do, to do it genuinely peacefully, to demonstrate that they're dissatisfied with all of this, and to do it in a sort of set of waves or pulses. So this isn't an event where you overthrow a government. It's a set of enduring disturbances, which never reach the level where the government feels it has to violently repress everybody, but isn't going away until the government does something about it. The problem is that governments are, are by and large, not in government, or politicians are not in government in the Middle East to do something about these sort of issues. And although I say that you know, we haven't seen, perhaps, the sort of violent crackdowns that we, that we saw in Iran, for example, and I, and I think Iran is a separate case, in 1999, 2004, 2009, and then most recently, 2018, 2019, you know, that could well be coming. Because, because one, of the, one of the lessons of the Arab Spring was that the, the coercive powers of government remain formidable in many Middle Eastern states. It's one of the lessons of Syria. I mean, Syria, of course, has been destroyed by this, but it's still there. And, and when I look at, you know, revolution, 
you know, Weber was interesting. You know, he he lived through. I mean, he died in the Spanish flu epidemic in 1921. But I mean, he he lived through that whole sort of Spartacus moment in in Germany in 1918, 1919, and came down like most Germans did on the side of the Social Democratic government, which suppressed them. And I think that's something else we saw after 2000, and two, certainly 2012, 2013. There's a set of contradictions in all of this. I, I honestly don't know how to resolve them, but I know they're there. It's very interesting. You you write that. The Arab Spring failed to ignite in the Gulf states, apart from briefly in Bahrain and Oman, because those countries are very good at providing economic security and opportunity for their peoples, as long as they don't demand political change in the Mm. the way that you've just described. To broaden it out slightly from the Middle East, obviously this is a model that lots of people will recognise, particularly around China. So this is the model that the Chinese Communist Party says it offers to its citizens. Yes. You get, you get economic prosperity, you get stability, as long as you don't ask for too many political rights. And certainly that's been the case most most recently as China has taken a more autocratic turn. Do you think that this model of governance is going to become more widespread and, and more attractive as a result of the instability that you underline in your piece? I think a lot of people in the Middle East, particularly in the Gulf, think it is attractive. I think it is the model, it, or it's one of, one of the models for Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. And because, you know, the Chinese have sold themselves, I mean, Xi's uh, China has, has sold itself pretty well as, as a state which is rising back to its global centrality, providing jobs, providing, you know, a, a booming economy, uh, innovation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm still uncertain as to, as to where this is going to end. But I think one thing that I concludes provisionally is, is again what something I say in the, in the in the piece which is that I mean if you think back to Condi Rice's speech in whenever it was 2007 was it when she when she talked about you know we're not going to support autocrats anymore and we 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 the Republican administration the Bush administration are going to swing behind essentially a democracy the trouble is what do you mean by democracy you know the sort of democracy that we have in liberal democracy that we have in, in Europe for example the United States and, and there are different systems Broadly speaking, is I mean, if you look around the world, it seems to me to be something that's not not just not the natural state of affairs, but actually is so unusual that it needs it needs quite a high level of explanation to understand why it emerged in the way it did. I also think that people generally, and, and some of this may be because of, of social media plus the globalization of communications and so forth, and because people understand what's happening in other countries and they see what's happening in other countries and they want. They want some of it themselves. I think people do want to have some sort of ownership of of what happens of their country. I mean, it was very striking to me in Libya when I went there in 2011. I landed at Benghazi Airport. Uh, There was no air traffic control to speak of, no customs, no nothing. We we drove in the streets down to where 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 we'd set up office. And you could see young people in the streets picking up the litter. It's something I've noticed, actually, in Burma as well, after the military coup which I hope will be an attempted military coup rather than actual military coup, the protesters are demonstratively clearing up after themselves. And in a way, that's a sort of symbolic owning of the public space. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite sort of Habermasian in that sense. This is because in too many states of the Middle East, there is this distinction between the private space, which is yours, and you're free to do what you want, and the public space, which is closed. It's close to women. It's close to people who don't agree with the government. It's close to non-elites, et cetera, et cetera. In a way, it's, it's that reclaiming of the public space, 
which I, I think will be one of the most significant things over the next 10 years. And if people can do that, and that helps shape the way in which governments respond to them, then, you know, I think it'll be a good thing. Will it happen? Mm, I think in some places it's sort of beginning to happen. I think in some places, parts of the Gulf, actually. But more generally, I'm still sceptical. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. I have one last question for you before we move on to our our listener question. And, And that is, having actually been there during all of this, been in Libya, do you think that we tend to overemphasize the commonalities between the various countries that were involved in the Arab Spring? Or do we pay too little attention to the sort of the common themes between them? I think, as you, you might expect me to say, I, I think it's I think it's a dialectic. Mm. <laughs> I mean, one of the interesting things, if you look at the, at the at the protests of the last two years, one of the one of the striking things about them is how you know demonstrators in in Basra or, or Nasiriya or uh, Tripoli in Lebanon and Beirut or Sidon will echo each other's slogans. So they're watching each other. They're, they're creating a sort of sense of transnational solidarity. And I think you know the issues of corruption job security. If you look at the Arab barometer, if you look at the Arab Youth Survey, these are all common concerns across the region. I think there are very specific manifestations of, of, of dissent, depending on the particular political sociology of the, of the country. Tunisia is, 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 is an obvious example. Uh, and one of the interesting things about Tunisia was that Tunisia, in a way, did better than everybody else, partly because it had an advanced civil society. You know, it had the, the, the UCGD, the, the, um, the, the, the Employees Federation, it had Utica, it had a bar association, it had a very strong women's voice in civil society, much of which was a product of, of Bourguiba's rule. That's something that was absent elsewhere. And that, that's one of the reasons I think Tunisia has taken the particular path it has, which is, which is in many ways different to, to, to others. So there are differences, but there are commonalities. Yeah, I found that one of the most interesting parts of the piece, talking about why revolutions work and, and you you write that it only seems to happen if there's already a strong civic and political culture. Do you think that this means that revolutions are always doomed if there aren't these pre-existing conditions? And if if they are, is there any way to improve things within these autocratic systems that, as you've talked about, don't have these additional kind of benefits of civil society or or various various groups that can help to, to improve things i tend to think they are doomed yes i mean there was a big debate in the social science literature before before 2011 over this this this, this whole thing but whether you needed preconditions for progressive political change or whether you could just parachute in you know a, a, a sort of ready built you know system and and, and that would work i think what we saw in the outspring actually pretty conclusively tells us that that you need there are, there are preconditions you need other things to have happened first and I understand, you know, a lot of people don't like the Gulf. Uh, I mean, they don't like Saudi Arabia in particular. They don't like the Emirates. Actually, they don't like most places in the Gulf because they think they're, they're authoritarian, authoritarian hellholes. I mean, they're certainly authoritarian. I don't think they're hellholes at all. And of course, this is partly because they've, they've had, you know, oil and gas and the rest of it and relatively small national populations. But they've managed to create structures which, which map onto onto some sort of traditional structures of resilience within Middle Eastern societies, the family, the tribe, 
and so forth. I mean, you know, tribes today are not the tribes that they were 100 years ago. Things change. But, but these are still very important channels for identity and, and influence. And because they've had the money, they've been able to use these and create states which give their citizens, I mean, citizens are not quite the right word, but, but you know, nationals, good things, welfare and a sense of belonging. Can that endure? I think it'll lead to change. I think it has been changing in any case. I mean, the Abu Dhabi, for example, of today is not the Abu Dhabi that I first went to in 1983. It's strikingly different. And do people want more participation? I mean, my guess is yes, but that participation doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, elections every four or five years. I mean, there are different ways of doing this. My guess is that, that everybody understands this in the region. Some people don't want it to happen because they're scared that they will lose power or, or, or as in Iran, that the Islamic Republic, to which you know, people like uh, Khamenei attach so much importance, will collapse if they let go. But a lot of other people recognize, I think, that you need to change. The question is, how do you do it? And I think one of the problems we've all had in the Middle East is an inability to map that sort of pathway to change. And on that note, it's now time for a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call. You ask us. We have been dancing around this throughout the conversation, and so I will ask it directly. Our listeners wanted to know if you think that there will be another Arab Spring. I don't think it'll happen in the way it did in 2011. Mm -hmm. And it already is happening. I mean, in a way, you know, since 2011, we've seen a range of different expressions of popular dissent dissatisfaction i mean one of the one of the interesting things one of the most interesting and most amusing things if you can use the word amusing of these sort of these sort of events were the demonstrations in uh, in beirut i think it was three years ago they were the quote unquote you stink demonstrations which was about it was ostensibly about the 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 failure of the government to collect the trash so the whole place was just overrun by overflowing rubbish bins there was a wit about it. And a lot of different people from different backgrounds participated. You see the same thing in different sort of circumstances in Iraq. We've seen them in, in Iran as well. So it's it's not gone away, as it were. I mean, it's not the, I mean, in many ways, the Arab Spring is not over. It's taken a different form. And I don't think we're going to see the same sort of mass demonstrations in Tahrir Square that we saw in 2011 in Cairo anytime soon, though it is always possible when uh, Ayatollah Khamenei eventually dies, that the succession will be deeply contested, and that will become another sort of flashpoint. Uh, but one of the things I think we did learn from 2011 is it's impossible to predict what's going to happen next. So we, we learned one thing. <laughs> it's, it's better than no things. Yes. <laughs> Thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. Keep them coming into us at uaskus.co.uk and look out for our announcement of our guests next week on our international Twitter account at Statesman World. As ever, for our final segment, we're going to take a look ahead to events in the world. So, John, what in world affairs will you be watching closely next week? Well, there are, th- there are three things. I mean, I know it's, only a, it's supposed to be one, but there are three, really. One's, one's the, the release of the declassified intelligence report into the murder of uh, Jamal al-Khashoggi, which was supposed to be yesterday, but wasn't. President Biden spoke to King Salman yesterday, and the State Department said it went well. That's going to be really difficult to handle, because it, it's it's almost certain that the report will say that the crown prince bears responsibility for the murder you know and that's going to be a tough one for for the us and for saudi arabia to 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 manage given that they do actually share significant interests a related sort of issue is 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 the aftermath of the us 
missile strikes on Iranian militia positions on the Syrian-Iraqi border, which has read across into Iraq. The, the U.S. Uh, trying to support uh, Mustafa al-Khazami, who's the, uh, the current prime minister, who's trying to do a, you know, the right thing against massive odds. But in a way, it, that's the first sort of indication we've had of what sort of posture the U.S. under Biden will, t- will adopt in the Middle East. And the third thing is, is what's happening in Burma. I was ambassador in, 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 uh, in Rangoon as well. Burma only comes into the news and something horrible happens uh, these days, like the, uh, the attacks in the Rohingya two or three years ago, and now this, this military coup. But what happens in Burma, I think, is going to have significant implications for Southeast Asia as a whole. My moment was, was taken from me by our guests. No, I was going to say the um, U.S. airstrikes on Iranian-backed militia, but I would just add that another complicating factor is that the U.S., European partners, Iranians, are all sort of doing this dance about the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. And who will, will, will Iran come back to the table or will the U.S. come back to the table and who moves first? And is it the same deal or are they going to renegotiate the deal? And I think we will see if slash how these airstrikes add another wrinkle to that. And Ida, what about you? Yeah, I am very relieved that my moment of the week was not taken by, by our guest. So mine is, uh, is this pledging conference that there's going to be headed by the UN's humanitarian chief, Mark Lowcock. He wants about $4 billion for Yemen, and he's warning that if they don't get that money, that a catastrophic famine is on, it, is on its way. So they say, the UN says that it was forced to cut the number of Yemenis receiving food and humanitarian aid from about 14 million in 2019 to about 9 million. So those are about four, four to 5 million people who are just not receiving very much food or very much humanitarian aid. And he says that if the UN doesn't get anywhere near that amount, then those people are more or less going to uh, going to die quite slow and painful deaths. So hopefully he will do so. And on that note, all that remains is to say thank you to Sir John Jenkins for joining us. You're very welcome. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review and follow all of our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads, generally for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.